Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, It's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Crossroads wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan ramesh ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to i'm sure it's only a matter of time head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information A warning, just before we begin, some listeners may find some of what we're about to hear distressing. Also, this episode contains some strong language. Okay. Kisha, as we approach what must be a very sad period for you, how have you been these past few years? Past few years has been, they say with time it gets easier, but it doesn't. It's actually the opposite. As every day goes by, I feel like I'm missing more opportunity with my son. And with no solution to what's really happened to him, it's a trying time for me and my family. And as the anniversary comes up, knowing that you haven't had your day in court... That's Keisha McLeod, CJ's mother. She's speaking to a journalist from ITV News as the police announce a fresh appeal. It's the third anniversary of her son's death. We're at Scotland Yard the headquarters of London's Metropolitan Police Force. And she's on camera, yet again, hoping that this time, someone might speak. I'm there with my producer, Poppy. We've been following this story for months now. In the last episode of the series, we named three men who were arrested in CJ's murder and released without charge due to lack of evidence. We were told of a fourth man, a new suspect. We're continuing to investigate any leads. We've still got a lot more to do. We've still got a lot more to answer for, especially in our education system. And if you were to give a message directly to the people that murdered CJ or those that know the people that did or anyone that has any information, what would it be? First and foremost, no information is too small. There is numerous ways to get in contact. You're listening to a bonus episode of Who Killed CJ Davis? I'm John Simpson, the crime correspondent for The Times. Here's a reminder of the series. As a parent, you just want to give your child a good start. As much as they saw him as this little boy, this playful character, there was also the other side to him. I think I should just act like a normal teenager. 
and then I ended up at the hospital. These people will stop at nothing. And I know that that is a very slim chance that people survive headshots. Too many children and young men have lost their lives. My behaviour is one of drama and I want to help change it. I do things and I don't think about the consequences. But I do apologise and ask for help from mum. Maybe just too late. Early on in the recording of this series, during an interview with Keisha, she spoke about the unfair expectations often placed on boys whose fathers are absent. And she raised it in the context of her race. I've said it in my family, and I, and I say it as a black parent, that we shouldn't do this. We always tell them that, all right, you're the man of the house now. We should never say that to children, because they feel like they have to grow up faster than they are. And I've always told him he's the man of the house, and he always needs to show a certain character about himself. We know the contact CJ had with his father was limited. And we know Keisha tried to give him male role models throughout his short life. His grandfather, his uncles... But CJ's dad was one person we wanted to speak with. Today, meet Corey Senior. Hello. How's it, Corey? Yeah. Corey, it's John Simpson from The Times. Yeah. How are you? Okay, I guess. That's CJ's father, Corey. He was hard to track down. After weeks of trying wrong numbers, we found a current address. He now lives in Bradford, 200 miles north of Newham, the East London borough where CJ grew up. After some deliberation, Corey Senior agreed to a telephone interview. My life with CJ wasn't that, um, what should I say? Uh, It was short. Corey Senior met Keisha, CJ's mum, at a party in Brixton in South London. He was a 23-year-old barber, recently arrived from Jamaica. She was 21. They soon had a child, CJ. But Keisha found that Corey had a dark side. He turned violent. She's a good mum. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I was going through a, a, a stage of like being arrogant or not like... I don't even know what to say. It wasn't, it wasn't getting along. One, one thing she, she said, and, and I know it's a difficult thing to discuss... Um, uh-huh. She said that towards the end of your relationship, it became quite... Uh, Violent. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't blame her for what she did in the, in the long run. I was just waiting. And his opinion. But I didn't get it. So you were kind of hoping for CJ's approval? Yeah. I didn't want to, like, prolong it because she had all the rights uh, I didn't like I don't know to explain it to you. Yeah. you understood you'd done something wrong Yeah. and you kind of gave her the space yeah so, she didn't deserve that really I'm sure she didn't deserve that when do you think you wh- when was it that you moved up north when CJ was like probably 2-3 years in episode 1 we established that Corey Senior and Keisha split up while CJ was still a baby. And as he just mentioned, he moved to the north of England, Bradford, when CJ was about two years old. I was keen to try and figure out how much contact CJ had with his father after he'd left London. He used to come and see me. Yeah? Back and forth. 
until we had some situation which we, we didn't have no connection with him at all, right? What kind of age was he then? He was like 12, 10 going on to 12. I used to get him like at holidays time and mm. the situation happened between me and his mom. I blame myself 100% every day for that. Talking to Corey Senior, he seemed to be saying that until CJ was about 10 years old, they were still in touch. But Corey Senior and Keisha fell out and the visit stopped. The next time the parents had contact was when CJ was killed. It's already happened. No, don't make sense cry over spill milk. Yeah. But just like how she called me and told me he got shot. Yeah. She could have she could have called me and told me that can I keep him? Yeah. Or he was in trouble. Yeah. So did you didn't know that, that CJ was, was getting in trouble? Nothing like that. Um, that was new to me. Can you remember the last time you saw him before that day? 2011, I supposed to went down to London to pick him up at that time, yeah? Apparently, I didn't have any money at the time to get the train or something like that. This was some holiday which I was looking forward to come. And I, and like, was like, I didn't have the money at that specific time to get the train and it started a feud between me and his mum because I didn't get to see him regular. Yeah. Yeah, I understand. During the call, it's hard to follow all the dates, but it appears there was an aborted train journey to London in 2011 when Corey Senior couldn't afford the train ticket down to collect CJ. That means 2011 would have been the last contact father and son had when CJ was eight or nine years old, not 10 or 12, as Corey Senior said. The next time he would see his son was the day CJ was shot. He got the phone call and drove down to the hospital. CJ was on life support and the family had been told he wouldn't wake up. They were waiting for Corey Senior before turning off the machine. They were waiting on me to turn the machine off. Keisha said you were quite reluctant to do that. Yeah, because I thought he had more fight in him. I believe he had more fight in him. And what was that moment like when you agreed that... Um, uh, I don't talk about this, you know. I don't uh, like talk about it. I understand. I don't know. It bothers me a lot. Of course. I'm not a person like Keisha who speak out, yeah? I'm some... Probably that's why I'm... Me and she never get along because I'm a speakative person, a talkative person. Um, I've been preparing, I've been preparing, preparing, preparing to talk to you. This is the first time Corey Senior has ever spoken about CJ's death publicly. His voice cracks as he speaks. He admits he made mistakes. He speaks about his violence towards Keisha. He praises her as a mother. But I wanted to know what he regrets and how he might have done more for CJ. Us daily, day in, day out. 
indigenous in and out. I have to ask, you know, the, the people often say when when a father's away, boys look. I believe like, that's true. I believe that's true. The ab- like the 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 absence of the father causes. Yeah, I believe that is true. Is that something you feel like you've learned since since he died? Like Keisha often says that telling CJ's story and some of the things he went through, some of the mistakes that people made and and difficulties that he experienced, she hopes, you know, keeps his memory alive. And but more than that, helps her because she hopes that maybe other parents, other people in our society will learn something in, and, and might it might save a life somewhere. You know, with Keisha, I can say for myself what I know and what I've, I've learned. I know it hurt me so much. I just imagine how it hurt her. Um, it was like everything to her. Don't get me wrong. Yeah? But she added more. You understand where I'm coming from? Of course. It was there's a lot of things I understand. With that, you no, know, with CJ, it took, like, it took her away, but I'm glad to know that she's standing up and still fighting. It's happy for me to know that. And Keisha continues to fight for CJ's killers to be brought to justice. As a mother, she was acutely aware of the absence of Corey Sr., as their son became exposed to gangs and descended into criminality. We've heard in this series that she brought in CJ's grandfather and uncles to fill the void. But there was also another man who she turned to for help. I grew up in Deptford, South East London. I was born in Lewisham Hospital. That's Dwayne Brooks. He describes himself as a part-time politician who also runs a photocopying business. In 1993, on the 22nd of April, when Dwayne was a teenager, he was with his friend, Stephen Lawrence. That evening, Stephen was attacked and stabbed to death by a group of white men while he and Dwayne were waiting for a bus in Eltham, south-east London. His racist murder became the most infamous hate crime in British history, and Dwayne was the only witness. It was 10.30 at night two weeks ago, and Stephen was waiting at this bus stop on his way home when five or six young white men came across the road. Although one shouted a racial taunt, Stephen didn't run. Then, without any provocation, the youth stabbed and beat him. As he lay bleeding, a friend tried to stop a car for help, but even in this middle-class area, no one did. He bled to death before he reached hospital. Almost unbelievably, Dwayne also has a role in this campaign for justice. He's been friends with CJ's mum, Keisha, since they were teenagers, growing up in southeast London. Keisha is just like any other female that I know, no different than some of my cousins. She's a lovely person, kind, and with most women, uh, quite soft. When CJ was about 12 years old, Dwayne remembers bumping into him with Keisha at the barbers. Every time I go to a barber shop. It always brings back memories for me of when I used to go barbershop with my dad. And the way they would comb your hair out, it was like they had no consideration for your pain. (laughs) And we'd all be sitting there as children and we knew 
what we was going to go through while sitting in that chair. And at no time could you say, you know, can you stop, please? Because you would have just got a clip around the ear and told to shut up. You know, your hair's being done. But it brings back those memories. And so when I saw them two there and saw his behaviour, that attracted me immediately. One, because she's my friend. And two, because his behaviour was something that would never have been allowed when I was at his age going to a barbershop. You walk in, you see your old friend and her son. What is CJ doing or, or saying to her that kind of really struck you in that moment? I think in the beginning it was he couldn't sit still. We're in the waiting area. Yeah. But he can't sit still. So that attracted me to him immediately. It's important to remember here that CJ had struggled with ADHD diagnosed when he was still at primary school. It's hard to know how much that influenced his behaviour at the barbers that day, but the way he treated his mother was clearly not acceptable to Dwayne. I saw that Keisha was speaking to him and he was totally ignoring her. I think he, just, he shouted something at her. And that just got my attention immediately and I got up and went and spoke to them both. What did you say roughly? What, what um, do you think? I think I said... Something around, you know, why are you speaking like that? This is your mother. You need to have respect for your mother. But then we had a conversation about why he should behave. And then Keisha told me that she was struggling with him, which is not unusual. Did, did CJ speak to you? Did, did, did he speak directly to you? And how did he react to you kind of interjecting there? The reaction was to be submissive. There was no rebellion there at all. You know, he didn't answer me back, which in turn told me that that's what he's missing. He's just missing that voice of authority. And then I had a conversation with Keisha for probably about another five or ten minutes. But then we had subsequent conversations after where she explained to me some of the difficulties that she was having with CJ, which, again, wasn't unusual because, you know, most mothers cannot be fathers also. This topic of single-parent families has long been blurred with moral panic over so-called broken homes. So it's important single parents and their children aren't stigmatised for their circumstances. Nonetheless, people from single-parent families are overrepresented in prisons in England and Wales, accounting for just over a third of the prison population in a 2012 survey by the Ministry of Justice, while single-parent families account for just under 15% of the overall total in broader society. Were you aware that CJ's father was absent? I had no idea because I didn't ask you. It's not something that I'm, I'm going to ask. But as, as uh, like I said to you, someone who always went with their dad to the barber shop, you would expect that it would be the dad taking him. Did did you ever um did you ever meet Corey, his father? Not before the hospital, no. Two years later, when CJ was shot, Dwayne got a call. He went straight to the hospital. He met Corey Senior and spoke to him for the first and only time. It was you know, it's just a greeting. Really, I'm sorry, sorry for what's happened, sorry for your loss. If you need to talk one day, I'm always at the other end of a phone. And that was it, because I don't know him. 
And I would expect that he would have his own support network who he could reach out to. Did he um did he ever take up that offer? No. No. But you know, people deal with trauma um in different ways. Absolutely. Let's kind of connect the, the dots a little bit because we've got yeah. that first interaction two years earlier and and it sounds like you could see quite quickly that something was going wrong and that, and that Keisha was actually, you know, quick to, to ask, to, to almost to ask for help. Is that fair? Of course. What, what did that look like? And, and you know, how, how did that play out? How it played out is it wasn't good enough. If I had interacted more with Keisha and CJ, he probably would still be alive today. I, I look back and think, hmm, maybe if I'd called and checked up on him every Friday, how's his week been? What's he been up to? What challenges did he face? How did he overcome those challenges? Maybe things would have been different. You sound like you, you, you wear it quite, um, it sits quite heavily on your, on your shoulders, this. Well, when, you, when I think about it and I, and I look over the steps, things could have been so different. And it was, it was such a huge shock when I got the phone call and was told CJ's been shot. Well, shot? What, what do you mean he's been shot? And then he was shot in East London. It was that, what, What's he doing in East London? Because where, where I stepped off, in a sense, it was mum and CJ were moving out of London. And so for me... It was okay, well, it's fine. Before CJ died, Keisha had been trying to get them out of Newham to a house nearer her family in south-east London. She feared for his safety. The move only happened after he was killed. For Dwayne, the absence in CJ's life of his father, Corey Senior, as a male role model, was crucial. When you have an issue in your relationship with your partner, but you have a child in the middle, it can be very difficult for the father on the outside. And the father may feel that he doesn't have access or the child may not want to see him, or the father may try to have access or try to see the child and he's blocked. And it all falls down. What tends to happen, the outcome is, is the child misses out. And in this case, CJ missed out. Can blame mum or we can blame dad it doesn't matter today it's just that cj missed out and possibly that lack of relationship with dad made it difficult for mum hi this is craig robinson from ways to win And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. While we were making this series, the Black Lives Matter protests spread across the globe, quickly reaching London. The movement prompted questions about the role of race and racism in CJ's story, and those of other children like him. Here, thousands of people have marched through central London as a show of solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. They chanted, we will not be silent and I can't breathe. Two weeks after George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis, the passion and sense of injustice is still profound. In a week that has seen thousands of people across the UK come out and stand up against racial injustice, so it is today that so many have turned up once again. In the UK, a pupil of black Caribbean heritage is at least three times more likely to be expelled from school than a fellow white British pupil. Also, black Britons are nearly ten times as likely to be stopped and searched by police. And in 2018 in London, despite making up just 13% of the population, almost half of all murder victims were black. CJ was a statistic in all three categories. That's Sheldon Thomas, a former gang member who now runs Gangsline, a charity that helps young people turn their lives around. He's speaking with my producer, Poppy. When you're fighting police officers, you're going to get arrested. And many of my friends, we started getting arrested and some of them like, oh, this is long. You know, they didn't use the word long back then. I'm just using that for today's reference. Sheldon was born in London in 1964 to Jamaican parents. He grew up in an era where he says the police were blatantly racist. As a teenager, he was a member of a street gang, but it was the drug trade and organised crime which he says changed things. That was where I saw the downfall for me as a black man and for me as a black community. And so from there, things spiralled out of control. Nine of my friends got shot dead over a five-year period. I myself was shot at quite a few times. I had to duck from gun bullets. 
we asked him about CJ's story. One of the things he raised was the school system. We have to ask ourselves, in 2020, how can we not find a school that represent black kids? Is that, that's not possible. And the only way that could be possible is by the systems they operate must be operating in a, in a way that racism plays a part in how they recruit. Now, am I saying that white teachers are racist? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there is an unconscious bias that then stops them from recruiting black teachers in senior positions to run in schools, deputy heads, that kind of stuff. If you look at the expulsion rate and you look at the link that the expulsion rate has to young people joining street gangs, then everybody can tell you that there is a correlation between young black boys being expelled and then being open to criminality. Sheldon says that child criminal exploitation thrives where young boys, already faced with racial inequality, grow up without a male role model. And I'm going to tell you something here. Gang members make young black men feel good about themselves. And when you have gangs that can make a young black boy feel better about himself than society, we're in trouble. Because that ain't how it's supposed to be. But he's quick to stress the problem isn't unique to black children. We have to get rid of structural racism, but at the same time, we have to address the flaws in our own community. So whether it be the poor white community or whether it be the black community. That, to me, is a very crucial point, which... I'm afraid to say, because of my travels around this country, I am able to see for myself firsthand how poor white communities and the black communities deal with that situation. And the answer is they don't. They don't face that fact. The fact is, when a child's father is absent, there is a certain amount of rejection that child feels, even though he or she might not be able to express that in the way because they're children. It's very difficult for a child to express rejection. I want to talk to you about the wall of silence, as it gets dubbed. Um, certainly making this podcast, it brings out what we, we already have experienced as crime reporters, John and I, but that people don't want to talk to you. We know there were lots of witnesses that day CJ was killed, from your experience working with gang members, being a gang yourself, talk to me about that mentality and, and why it's so hard to kind of get information and find out who did this. You've got to understand the experiences of the black community, and I'm going to say black community, but they're also the same experience of poor white community. So I don't want anyone to think that it's only black people that got a problem with police. The poor white communities have the same issue. But I'm going to speak from a black perspective. This goes back to my days. During the 70s, we had police officers that were blatantly racist. They would call us all kinds of names like Sambo and Gollywog and Jungle Bunny, right? Those were the names at the time. Those were the days back in the 70s. I was called a Sambo at the age of nine years old. Nine years old, nobody. Going to a park, two police officers walked past me. 1974, I had no idea what the word Sambo was, and the man shouted out Sambo and looked at me as if he wanted to kill me. So that's a police officer. I'm nine years old. And that's what I had to deal with for about 13, 14 years of my life. Insults, kidnaps, torture by police officers. Not, And on top of it, being chased 
hounded like an animal by the National Front. That was the life of a black man in the 70s. So when people talk about why there's a wall of silence, the black community has never been given an apology for the behaviour of the police. The police have never took account for their actions against the black community during the 70s and 80s. No one asks the question, why did we burn down Brixton in 81 and 82? Why did we burn down Side and Toxteth in 83? Why did we burn down Tottenham in 85? The riots of the 80s had an overriding theme. Conflict with the police in largely black communities. Scenes of running street battles and Molotov cocktails. Bricks flying through the air prompted institutional soul-searching, but ultimately a public inquiry absolved the police of racism. Every one of those incidents were all to do with how we felt as young black men living in this country. The original Black Lives Matter movement was born then, not now. And for decades, in the young black man's side, in the black community's eyes, we've not seen any change. Now, are police officers being racist? No. What I am saying when I say no change, we have not seen any change in the way they do stop and search. We've not seen any change in the way black people are recruited to join the police force. We're not seeing any change in the promotion of black men and women in top positions. We've not seen any change there. It wasn't until Sir William McPherson's report on the murder of Dwayne's friend, Stephen Lawrence, was published in 1999 that the phrase institutional racism was first used to describe the police in London. The Met insists that the McPherson report was a catalyst for change in the intervening years that's seen a huge amount of progress on race relations. CJ was 14 when he died. Does that shock you? No, 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 of course not. You've got to understand, right? In the black community, and I'm going to say it does happen in the white community as well, so please, no one take offence to this. We're just, I'm just talking from this perspective. Mm-hmm. Young black kids have been dying for a long time. I, I lost nine, nine guys over a five-year period in the 80s to gun violence. None of it made front page. The only reason why CJ is made front page now is because we've been putting pressure on the press to highlight certain things because what we found was the minute a white person gets shot or stabbed, it was from a middle-class background, it's on the front page. But when a black person gets shot or stabbed, it's never on the front page. For some, it's the system, isn't it? The system is against you, structural racism, white privilege, etc. That's Dwayne Brooks again. But I think that, firstly, during my secondary school experience, there was racism in a sense of how black children were treated, black children being told to sit at the back of the class, white children put at the front of the class, etc. That happened. I experienced that. We all know what happened with Stephen Lawrence. I I experienced that. But before then, did racism, because people say it's race, so did racism make me a bad person when I was a young boy? No, it didn't. Did racism stop me from working hard at school? No, it didn't. For me, it was my personal attitude 
that stopped me from working to the best of my ability whilst I was at school. And what caused that was the home life, the domestic violence in my home, the fighting, the arguments, the abuse. So that wasn't down to racism. That was down to what was happening in my parents' life. To play devil's advocate a bit here, like CJ grew up in deprived borough in London. The opportunities are fewer. He's, you know, he's in a school where that care and attention is, is less readily available because there's lots of kids that need it. I don't know. I mean, I don't know whether the colour of his skin makes any difference to that. He, he's more vulnerable, I guess, to the kind of criminal exploitation that, that goes on. In... But why? And that's, that's the other side. You know, if we're going to say all of this is because of race, then basically what we're saying then is black people are more prone to commit crime if life becomes a bit difficult. And I don't think that's fair and I don't think that's right. What has to change in, in our society for, for young men to stop dying this way, you know, for children to stop being exposed and experiencing this kind of violence? I don't know. I don't know. There was a gap of 24 years between his friend, Stephen Lawrence, being stabbed to death in 1993, and his friend's son being shot and killed in 2017. I don't have the magic key. I don't believe it's one thing. They say it takes a village to raise a child, and therefore we need to operate like a village, isn't it? The best person for whatever's needed is the person that's contacted, and they offer their support. And then it goes on to somebody else, your aunt, your uncle, your cousin, in a similar way, and local services. And it's for your parents, or family members, again, the, the, the village, to show you what you can be in life. But I suppose in the beginning, that means you've got to identify what they are seeing today. And sometimes that can be difficult. We're five weeks into what we've been doing together. Uh, how do you reflect on all of it and how, how do you feel you know, about the case and how much hope is there for you? I feel actually blessed, the fact that I'm able to speak on my son. Back at Scotland Yard, and I'm with Keisha. I'm broken. I'm not going to try and cover it that I'm a mother that can go on. I'm not. She's finished her media interviews on the third anniversary of her son's death. And we're talking through five weeks of difficult revelations on this podcast. My family is a broken family. However, we're looking for justice for CJ. And through the podcast, everything that I learn just kind of breaks my heart for him even more about how much he faced, how much the odds was against him. As I look at my family... As we're coming up to the third year anniversary, you see it as that, I see it as the year that he turns 18. Legally, he turns into a man. He wouldn't have left my house yet, because I know he would have been a mummy's boy. But it would have been the time that a little bit of responsibility would be more his way and my reins would come off a bit. I don't have that opportunity. Throughout CJ's life, Keisha was his one constant. She persevered when he was failed by others, and when he made mistakes, and in the face of the brutality of his criminal exploitation. 
she doesn't intend to stop now. I'm grateful for this appeal. Me and my family want closure. We're fighting for justice for my son. So anything that can come from this, any form of information that can help this case to be solved is, is what I'm looking for. And just some closure for this part of the journey in regards to CJ. There's an instinct to seek out a panacea and in doing so identify the one wound that needs healing. Who's to blame? What's to blame for that boy being anywhere near a shotgun? Too often in our society, that can take the form of a divisive, incorrect stereotype of the absent black father. The truth, as CJ's story highlights, is that it takes a violent confluence of disasters for a child to be killed in this way. The pattern, problems at home and at school, exclusion, exploitation and a lack of additional time and support, is all too common, leaving thousands of children still at risk. Perhaps the saddest thing is that it's not just the murderer who pulled the trigger that day who's to blame. Is that too many people are. As I go back to my crime desk, there's been a new wave of violence involving teenagers in London as COVID-19 lockdown measures ease. And CJ's case remains unsolved. We contacted the Met Police and put to them some of the issues raised in this episode. They told us, In 2020, we do not believe the Met as an organisation is failing to provide an appropriate service to people because of their colour, culture or ethnic origin. Nor do we believe the Met and our officers are prejudiced, ignorant and thoughtless and carry out racist stereotyping. But they did add, We recognise the concerns and anger some members of our communities have about how we police London, and we continue to engage with Londoners on how to increase public confidence. This podcast is written and hosted by me, John Simpson, the crime correspondent for The Times. It's produced by Will Rowe. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design is by Carla Patella. Original music was composed by Cam Shuck. You can find his work at satellitestudios.co.uk. If you have any more information on CJ's death, please contact us using the tips email, phone number, WhatsApp and Instagram in the podcast description. You can also contact the police. The information is also in the podcast description and they're offering a £20,000 reward. You can find us on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify and more. This podcast was brought to you by the Stories of Our Times production team, a daily news podcast hosted by Manveen Rana and David Aronovich bringing you one remarkable story told in depth each day, available wherever you get your podcasts. It's also now available on the Times Radio app, along with all the other podcasts from the Times. To download the app, search for Times Radio on your app store. Woo!